Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. As we gear up for award season, there's no better time to join us. By becoming a Vanity Fair subscriber, you'll gain exclusive access to our in-depth coverage of film, television, and the best of Hollywood. And that's just the beginning. Vanity Fair takes you inside the worlds of entertainment, culture, politics, and scandal, bringing you iconic images, era-defining stories, and much more. Get 15% off a year of digital access to Vanity Fair by visiting VanityFair.com and using promo code POD15 at checkout. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a full year of insights and exclusive digital access. Subscribe now. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair and Panoply. I'm Katie Rich, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com, and I'm here with our digital director, Mike Hogan. Hi, Katie. Our senior writer, Joanna Robinson. Hi, Katie. And joining us for the first time, we have our executive awards editor, Anna Raya. Anna, thank you so much for joining us. Glad to be here. It's way overdue to have you on because you are as in the thick of award season as anyone on this earth, I think. But it seemed like a great time to have you on because this week is the release of our second uh, award season special issue. It's a print edition that's going out to all of the awards voters. Uh, it's for phase two, as we call it, because it's after the nominations have come out. We talked about the first issue when it came out earlier in the year. But uh, Anna, from your perspective, what, what does this issue have in it? Like it's it's got a lot of stuff that's going to be online. People can read it. But what are we? Who are we talking? targeting with issues like this to just try to really dig into award season? I think the through line with all of the stories is that we're trying to find angles that no one's already tired of hearing or reading about with these films and with these filmmakers and with this talent. So we kind of do a more thematic type stories. For example, your story, Katie, that you wrote about writing a powerful female character, that once the nominees had revealed themselves in the writing categories, we realized was a great through line to kind of hook onto, especially in this Time's Up, Me Too movement that we're kind of in the midst of, which is also impacting so many angles of awards this season in very interesting ways. And that was one way that we were able to kind of hook into that a little bit with your story. We like to include the animation category because that's a really big one. And so, Joanna, you wrote a story. We were thinking, okay, what's interesting about this year's nominees? And and you really kind of pulled in on Coco and the breadwinner about how their voice castings were a really big attempt on the filmmakers' part to make them representative of the communities that are featured in the films. So there's also a really interesting through line of representation in our stories. We have two columns that April Rain, who coined the hashtag Oscar So Right, she wrote a companion column to one that we had uh, Franklin Leonard write, kind of also touching upon that subject of what kind of representation are we going to see in these nominations. And thankfully, there was better representation than there had been in past years. But April Ray makes a very strong case for why Oscar Star White is still really relevant. Yeah, when we reached out to Franklin, so Franklin runs the Blacklist, which is the annual list of unproduced screenplays that's really prestigious. But he's also a really authoritative voice on these representation issues. And when we reached out to him, it was looking like we were going to have another really kind of disappointing Oscar so white year and it turned out not to be that way which I think we have all kind of celebrated on this on this podcast there's still plenty of work to do and Franklin goes through all the reasons that Hollywood needs to fix its diversity issues if it wants to be able to speak with a 
you know, from a place of moral standing about, you know, other things that are happening in the country, including all this nonsense that Trump is up to. And then April just really zoomed in on the kind of financials. It's just, it makes sense. It makes a lot of business sense to have more diverse casts and crews and creative teams. And that really flies in the face of some of these annoying, fake, hard to kill conventional wisdom things about, you know, that that allegedly um, people in power positions in Hollywood have used to justify, you know, just continually hiring the same white guys over and over again. So they're I think together, those are two pretty strong pieces. So, Anna, you've been working uh, in, in various parts of the award season industry for a long time, and you've worked on kind of special Oscar editions like this, where you're talking to publicists and people behind these films who have stories about their movies that they want to tell. And that's kind of part of the job of journalists at this point is the stories that you want to tell and getting the people who are making the films to want to tell them as well. And I'm curious about how this year has been, because it's been such an upside down award season. It's been, you know, constantly on the brink of controversy. How tricky has that been for everybody? Like, does it does it feel like a normal award season in any way? No, I mean, no year ever really is. But once the Harvey Weinstein allegations had made themselves apparent, and that was right at the beginning of award season, that starts in earnest at the fall film festivals in September. And that was around the same time that this was all starting to appear in print. And then those stories just kept coming. And we thought, this is a game changer for a lot of reasons. It it affects the tenor of the industry. And that definitely has carried itself into where we're at right now, where even leading up to the Oscars, Rebecca Keegan wrote a story about the red carpet at the Oscars and how is that going to be impacted because we saw how it impacted the Golden Globes. And a really in a really powerful way, we were trying to find out what are the plans for the Oscars and we couldn't get too far because no one wants to say anything. I mean, one, it might just be too early, but honestly, we think that there's some, some trepidation at, at the academy and how they're going to deal with this, um, and also coming off the you know envelope gate from last year. So it's interesting. I have conversations with awards consultants and personal publicists all the time, and they're very candid and open. But as soon as we switch gears into hey, th- I call back. You know, we actually want to do a story about this that or the other thing. <laughs> like everyone kind of clams up. So it's been interesting navigating. Um, trying to get to certain people like and I don't want to name names or get into the intricacies of some of our thoughts about some of the people who actually are nominated this year but it's just really interesting there's such a thing as playing a campaign very well I thought when Eddie Redmayne won for the theory of everything he did everything that he was supposed to do he did all the events and all the press screenings and we talk about him on this show a lot as like the example of someone who just like works the circuit there's a playbook. And so there's a few people who are doing that very well. And there's a few people who have some skeletons in their closets who have managed to kind of escape the way that someone like James Franco, you know, like he really kind of got in the crosshairs there and I think deservedly so. But it's not to say that James Franco played the game differently or not the right way. I think the thing with James Franco is he's a very open guy, but there's a few other people who've just played it really well and that they've just kind of avoided some of this negative press and, you know, are getting their nominations and some of them might actually win on March 4th. And so it's an interesting thing. There's such a thing as playing the Oscar campaign game. And this year there have been several people who've had to try to also play the, I don't want to get, you know, in the crosshairs of some Twitter, a Twitter storm because I did something really badly. There's some bad behavior of mine that's going to arise and kind of mar my my ascendance to that stage at the Dolby Theater. Yeah. 
what I loved about several of the pieces in the magazine is that it's telling stories that are about awards, but aren't kind of the same stories you see repeated that you see kind of actors giving as anecdotes on the red carpet. And what you know, and what I think I've learned from working with you is that award season is so calibrated and they pick the five stories they want to tell. How is it for you when you're putting together this issue? Like, why is it that these stories become so glued in and become just what the narrative is? And then what do you do to kind of push against that and find the stories that actually are worth telling and are going to feel fresh to people who are getting this magazine or reading the stories online? I think with phase two, it's it's easier because you've heard the stories so many times. You've heard the anecdotes. I, whenever I do interviews, and I don't do them very often anymore, but I get, I hate when it's a filmmaker or an actor who I've read so much about because then I think, oh my gosh, how are we going to, how am I going to ask anything possibly different to this point? And that's just the job of journalists is that you just kind of have to dig deep and do your research and find something that they haven't talked about yet. But thematically, I think for this issue, a lot of it is just, yeah, just kind of, Yes, I hear you. Yes, I know that's your story. I know that that's your positioning that you're going after. But this is actually what I'm really interested in. I think, Joanne, I think your your animation story is a really good example of that. And that we didn't just go into these are the five nominated animated films. It's, hey, did you notice that all the voices in these two films, you know, there's not one really big giant A-lister. And I love how you pointed out that Angelina Jolie was a producer on one of them and and then still decided not to lend her voice because that would have just changed the kind of film that they were making. So Rebecca Keegan had a really good idea to do something on the Fox Searchlight guys, the guys who basically greenlight all the films that the studio's doing. And, and Fox Searchlight has the two front writers for Best Picture at this point. We talked yes. about that last week. They've kind of had a successful year this year. Yeah. And so she... She had the the sort of foresight to think of about doing that right around the same time that Disney was angling to buy Fox and uh, in a sale or in an agreement, an arrangement that would have involved Fox Searchlight. And so we kind of held on to that for this issue because we just thought that if you're wondering how you get to the Oscars, these are the two guys that you want to kind of, whose brain you want to pick. These issues were kind of something that you started thinking of a while ago and kind of realizing how uh, much of a process award season was. And like in your process of making these issues happen, like what are awards voters thinking about right now? What are the studios freaking out about? Like what is the distinction of phase two that we're hitting with all of this? Anna would probably know better than me what, what awards voters are thinking day to day right now. I think at some level, if I had to guess, they're probably in a similar boat that I am, which is watching all the stuff stuff that they didn't get to see in phase one uh, and assessing, you know, in the last five days, I've watched four foreign language nominees, for instance, you know, like I had good for you. (laughs) I'd put it off and now, you know, you got to get it done. Um, And so I think that we can probably overinterpret how worried uh, Academy voters are about, you know, the sort of Twitter wars that happen over movies that a lot of people love or a lot of people don't love. But I, I would say even just the experience of watching the foreign language movies, You're watching them uh, for craft. You're watching for accomplishment. And then you're also, I do think they're they're probably thinking about what kind of statement is this going to make, right? This is a very intense, really difficult, crazy moment. And you now have a limited number of options uh, to make a statement. So are you going to make a statement about empowering women? Are you going to make a statement about resisting, you know, creeping kind of totalitarian instincts? Are you going to make a statement about finding ways for people to get along, even though they may really disagree about some incredibly core things um, about how life works, you know, or forgiving people who whose ideas you don't like? So, I mean, 
I think that that's that that stuff is in the background and in the foreground is probably just a scramble to just make sure you can make informed decisions on as many categories as possible and not be phoning a bunch of them in. I don't know. What do you think, Anna? Is that round right? I think it's that. I think that's why even in our selections of foreign and documentary films to feature in phase two, it was two films that we kind of hadn't paid too much attention to in phase one. And I think that's that's what phase two and and being able to do these magazines offers you an opportunity is like, uh, we picked the really obvious things in phase one because we wanted to make smart choices and look like we know what we're doing, which thankfully in our phase one issue we did. You know, I think with the exception of a few things, we we pretty much got a lot of people who ended up in nominations. So yeah, with phase two, it's like, what what have we not written or talked about enough? So, you know, everyone in the doc category had been talking about Jane, the Jane Goodall documentary, and it was a shoo-in for not only a nom, but possibly to win. Well, guess what? It didn't get nominated. So we kind of had to look around and say, well, what other films are in there? And we had done a, a story rounding up all the Syrian docs in phase one, which was thankfully another good smart move because one of them has, has been nominated. But there was a film called Icarus that we had not even really thought of. And when you watch that film, you think it's one of those instances when it's like hoop dreams for me, when the filmmaker just has no idea what they're going to capture when they start and the story changes and it, and it ends in a way you weren't expecting when you were starting out. It's about, it's about doping. And it ended up getting into the sort of Russian doping story that's now playing out with the Olympics. So, so it was just interesting of things that we thought were really obvious in phase one that weren't are things that we've highlighted. And then Rebecca Keegan did a story about Titanic. It's, it's been 20 years since Titanic swept the Oscars. Um, that was, 20 years ago, which is kind of crazy. And so she has written a book on James Cameron. She has a very close relationship with him. And we had her go and revisit with him that night. And there's a part, there's an anecdote. I think, Mike, it's your favorite anecdote about the story with his pants and that his, his tailor didn't show up. And who knew that when he's raising his hands and holding his trophy saying, I'm the king of the world, that his he was worried that his pants were going to fall down. The other thing I love about that, first of all, he, yeah, his pants are falling down. Second of all, uh, Warren Beatty is like side-eyeing him so hard because they he really thought it was so tacky for him to shout, I'm the king of the world. He, he assumed that everyone in the world had seen them. I mean, a lot of people had obviously seen the movie. Almost literally everyone on the world in the world had but seen But not them. everybody got the reference, right? And so some people were just like, who the hell does this guy think he is? And he he's very funny talking to Rebecca, who he knows obviously pretty well after doing all these, these projects together. Just being like, yeah, I guess I actually shouldn't have said that. And Warren really gave me a look and I mean, it's it's a funny echo of of what we all experienced with Warren uh, Beatty last year. Well, yeah, but little also, did he know it'd be the second least, second most awkward Oscar right, best picture right. moment of his life. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, but that and the Greg Williams thing. I mean, it shows that at the end of the day, you know, it, it's a bunch of people trying to navigate a really weird situation, right? I mean, it's a, we we come back to that on this show, or I come back to this on the show, but it really is. It's kind of like a high school, you know, it's six months of your life for a, for a lot of these folks going to the same thing over and over again. That's why I love about uh, Greg Williams's portfolio. It's like the you know junior prom of uh, of this experience uh, as we head into the senior prom of Oscar night, and you really see it's like everybody's just they're they're 
they're in this thing. They're starting to get to know each other. They're getting comfortable with each other. They're rivals, but they're also sort of, you know, it's like going to war together uh, at some level. So I, I hope I hope we capture that in the issue. And Anna did such a great job of like of, of curating the whole thing and 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 yes, making it servicey for awards voters and also making it fun for for them and for all the people who are going to be able to see this stuff on our site who don't necessarily belong to for the, the uh, for the rest uh, of us Academy. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Anna on the Greg Williams note, I was curious because you've been at a lot of these events. You've been talking to a lot of these people. Are there any like kind of highlights from you of this season of either people who seem to be really enjoying it, who have gotten to know each other, or just you know are making the most of a season that for a lot of people I think has felt more awkward than joyful? When Frances McDormand won at the Golden Globes and then came backstage, she was charming and she was charming the pants off of everyone in the press room. And I thought she's really having a moment here. Like she, she was someone all season long who avoided the press, who didn't do a lot of interviews, um, doesn't like being photographed. Uh, she, you could tell that she's just really enjoying this, that, that this is something that's really important to her. And, and you could tell she wants to win. And that's really interesting when it's someone like her who takes herself very seriously and what she does very seriously and doesn't campaign and doesn't kind of do, you know, the Eddie Redmayne circuit, but that you could see that she actually still really wants it. So that was something I picked up when she came backstage. People that night were just in awe of Oprah Winfrey. We all saw her speech. Everyone who, you know, they, as soon as you win, they bring you back to the press area and people who, I forget who's supposed to go up and actually talk at that point, but everyone just shut up and they, we, there's screens in the back room. You couldn't hear a pin drop. And it's never like that back of there in that room. Like everyone stopped and watched her, except her, her Cecil B. DeMille award. And then she came back almost immediately, which was interesting because a lot of times the winners, they go to all these other places backstage and then they finally show up. Oprah came back right away and wowed us in the press room. Like we just sat there. It was like we got the Oprah Winfrey treatment from her talk show. She so you guys all about. signed up for her campaign, her political campaign? <laughs> <laughs> I think I stood up and this is, I shouldn't admit this, but I stood up and said, Oprah for president in the press room because I just, was I just was like thinking this would be the most amazing thing ever. And then she came backstage, and what you guys saw on the stage on TV, she came back and did times two with us in the press room by answering, you know, our silly little questions in the most meaningful ways that anyone could. I was amazed at her ability to just riff normally like that. Like at least her Cecil B. DeMille speech, I think she'd worked on it for a very long time. She came back completely unprepared and just did the exact same thing. So it was just kind of amazing to see. How much I that mean, it's not that her. amazing. It's Oprah. She's the, she's the <laughs> goddess of talk. I'm sorry. You know, come on. It's impressive. It's impressive. Uh, it's so. impressive, but that's a, that's her superpower. That and anyway, I know. Yeah, no, I, I, but that's it, why it, she it can win. Awesome. She could she could mesmerize all of of, of America oh, to yeah. vote for her. It's possible. So, and I want to ask you. You know, Katie and I will talk a little bit more about the nominees luncheon, which is like one of our favorite moments of the year later in the show today. You've talked a couple times about the circuit uh, that we've all seen the Eddie Redmayne treatment. Are there ways in which you've seen it? changed this year like Frances McDormand wasn't at the luncheon you've mentioned her as someone who like maybe doesn't play the game exactly the same way that other other people would but is there a way in which maybe the new academy members would not respond to the classic campaign is there ways in which you've seen updated versions of the old handshake ways of yesteryear definitely I definitely think the newer membership isn't gonna care about you know going to eat canapes and then go to a screening it's so funny the rules require that if you're going to screen the film anywhere and do like a q a panel afterwards but you also want to serve 
drinks or food, like you have to have the two happen at the same time or like in concert with each other, which is funny because I think in the past you used to just have a party and not screen the film. Now you absolutely have to. What I noticed, what, what Rebecca and I are actually talking about in the office is there's been a bunch of hosted screenings, no food or drink, where a bunch of friends of the filmmaker or friends of the talent have hosted a screening of the film for these people. And it's people you would never expect, like Sandra Bullock hosted something. I, w- I wish I could go into my email and show you some of the names that have shown up on these invites. But people that you just, on surface, seem sort of random, but but impressive names of people that like, oh, I want to go to a Sandra Bullock screening of this film. I want to hear her say what she loves about it. You know, she's a she's an Oscar winner herself. So there have been um, more interesting ways that they've that the films themselves have been campaigned. I find like there's definitely more screenings or more conversation time. And what's really important is if, your filmmakers can go back and mingle with everyone after the film. We do them with Jordan Peele and Get Out really early in the season. And that's all anyone wanted to do was just talk to him and get in front of him and hear his thoughts beyond what was already expressed at the Q&A panel. So a lot of screenings, more than normal, with less fanfare about them and more just people rooting for their films, Academy members who aren't at all involved in the films, but also famous still and kind of a draw hosting screenings. That seems kind of great, like maybe more yeah. how it should be. Kind of, and I think that's the thing. I think that's why I have high hopes for not only just how we're going to be covering this event in years to come because the films themselves are different, but I also just do think it's going to be less strategic and less kind of gross, to be honest, um, where it is just having conversations as many times as you can with people who are voting for you or not. And so I think the filmmakers understand that. And I think their handlers certainly understand that. I think that was the question that we were asked was how many Academy members are here in this room right now, literally doing a head count so they can make sure, okay, out of an 8,000 person membership, there's 50 of them here. That's great. That's a good night for us. You can cross them off your list. Yeah. It's still strategic from like the rep's perspective, but right. honestly for the talent it is just kind of getting FaceTime with people. You've done such a good job of promoting all the all the great articles that's in the awards issue. And I definitely don't want to be promoting myself, but <laughs> the the very little animation piece that I wrote for the awards issue, the, one of the producers, the breadwinner said, just what I thought was the most interesting thing where he said he thought that in Hollywood right now, there was a real thirst for authenticity. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that, you know, that's reflected not just in, you know, the casting of these two films, but kind of across the board and exactly what you're saying, like the new Academy members are not going to be impressed by inauthentic glad handing and it's authentic sharing of real storytelling, like Get Out or Lady Bird or, you know, your mileage, mileage may vary, but Three Billboards or Shape of Water that people seem to be responding to. Well, nobody's yeah. impressed by inauthentic glad handing, but everybody likes authentic <laughs> glad handing. I mean, I, you, you still have to... The, the the reps are still going to tell you when your head hits, I mean, literally, I'm quoting now, when your head hits the pillow at night, you know, if you met and shook the hands of 20 voters that day, like you did your job and you can go to sleep now. And so obviously you have to evolve the approach for the younger, newer members, but but every each one gets a vote, right? And there's still, we think, like... Uh, more old older members than the newer members. So I think if anything, it's just evolving the complexity of it, adding to the complexity of it rather than saying like, oh, I'm not going to go to those canopy things anymore. Like, I think you still have to go. Unless you're Frances McDormand, she's got whatever she's got. She's got a kind of iconic status. She's got the Cone Brothers kind of cachet. And there are always people who can get away with just like, I'm not doing it. But you have to be a certain type of basically legend, I think, in order to get away with that. That or just the role 
of a lifetime, like her character mm-hmm. and through it's she's a badass. I mean, there's just so much meat there for her to sink her teeth into, and she does. And so, um, like I think Mike, you and I had that conversation after I'd seen the post. Someone said, or maybe I had some a conversation with someone else after I'd seen the post where they said, Oh, Meryl's gonna win it. And I said, no, have you seen Three Billboards yet? Like, there's, it gets funny. You kind of do compare, like, well, how much more did the person do? And I think that nothing can come close to what Frances is doing in that film. And so she knows it. And 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 so even if she were in a, a campaign mode or really wanted to kind of do that, the circuit, like, she <laughs> she wouldn't even need to. Well, and I guess I guess to Joanna's point, which I was being flippant about. Um, it probably would be inauthentic glad handing if she did it. So maybe she's better off just, yeah. uh, you know, keeping her distance and letting people admire her from afar. And either she gets it or she doesn't, you know? I mean, yeah. it, like you said, though, it is interesting because everybody does want it, right? Nobody's like, oh, I don't need the Oscar, except maybe, I don't know, Woody Allen in his day. I doubt it, though, even with him. But just have different ways of showing it. <laughs> I guess that's life. <laughs> Uh, Anna, maybe to uh, to wrap up this conversation, I'm curious if you have any kind of general predictions about how the Oscars themselves will go, maybe less about who will win and just what the vibe will be. It seems like like you were saying, like the heat has kind of calmed down to the point that we can have a somewhat normal Oscars. But do you think we'll notice uh, general differences of what's going on this year? So I've been asking around just at our office and people that I talk to, you know, is the red carpet going to be impacted? There's this general feeling that there's not going to be, that everyone's going to wear all black. Although it was interesting, though, that um, I think at BAFTA they did that. Because I think they just want to just have as much, have things get back to some semblance of normalcy as much as possible. So I think the red carpet won't necessarily be impacted. I think what people will be asked on the carpet will. John Bailey at the nominees luncheon yesterday just was very direct about how we know what's going on and we're going to, you know, work better and or work harder at kind of addressing these issues that have come up. And so I think he might make a really strong statement at the actual Oscars. You know, the president always does give a speech. Everyone's rooting for Jimmy Kimmel. Um, Nicole Sperling wrote a piece, we didn't even mention that, but Nicole Sperling wrote a piece about how in the hell does anyone do the Oscars now in this year in this climate with what's happened. And everyone's rooting for Jimmy Kimmel. They think he's a perfect host for this time. Um, he was great last year, but it, you know we he's proven it on his late night show that he can really get into the hard topics in a way that is kind of moving and funny and entertaining at the same time. So everyone's kind of hinging a lot of their hopes on him being able to just kind of set the tenor for that night. And then I'm assuming in the speeches, I know that we we had we had lunch, Mike and I had lunch with the SAG um, organizers, SAG Awards organizers, and they kind of just assumed that they would trust the speeches and the people themselves to kind of make the statements. And they didn't feel like they needed to as the events organizers. And I think that's what probably the smartest movie Academy would be able to do at this point is to not try to make some sweeping gestures or, you know have a big kind of moment of reckoning because I think they'll probably not do it very well and just let the speeches speak for themselves because I think there's plenty of people who are nominated who are poised to win who could kind of really make statements that we'll talk about for days later. So I don't think too much is going to change. I think everyone just kind of wants to celebrate the films and celebrate who got these nominations because thankfully it's a much more representative group than we've had in a while and kind of not get in the way of that. Yeah. Well, we will be talking about the Oscars a lot on this podcast and a lot on VF.com where the stories from this special issue will be rolling out uh, over the next week or so. Um, So there's a lot to read and catch up on. And Anna, I'm sure we will be picking your brain about award season many, many times from now on. Um, So thank you for finally joining us on the show. No problem. Thanks for having me. It was great. So to wrap up this episode, Joanna and I are are hanging around just because one of the most delightful 
events of award season happen on Monday, uh, which is the Oscar nominees luncheon. Uh, our own Rebecca Keegan was there, which is, you know, this event that happens at the Beverly Hilton and they get pretty much all of the nominees. There's always a couple of exceptions and they have lunch and they kind of get a rundown of how to, you know, handle their speeches. And it's an event for both Steven Spielberg and the, you know, director of a live action short who's there for the first time. And then they take this incredibly cute group photo, which you can see on VF.com. And Kobe Bryant is there sitting front and center as the nominee for a producer of one of the shorts. I read Rebecca's piece. I will um, include a link to it in the post for this. Uh, so Joanna, what, what stood out for you most either in this group photo or in all the incredibly charming anecdotes that came out of this? Well, it's funny because this is something, you know, this is our what fourth Oscar season together, Katie Rich. I think so. It's been such a crash course for me, like working with you. I, I never in the past thought to look forward to the nominees luncheon or the class photo. And then you getting excited about it every year that I'm like, Oh, the class photo is coming. It's my favorite thing. <laughs> Katie loves the class photo. And, but it wasn't until this year that I really thought even one level deeper about this event. I was just sort of like, Oh, these are the fun, funny trappings of award season that like Katie is kind of obsessed with. And it's fun for me to like see you get excited and be excited too and stuff like that. But Seeing Greta Gerwig and Steven Spielberg and Guillermo del Toro take a selfie together is like cute and fun. And the ways in which like the, I don't know, formality of events like this are breaking down as younger and younger people come in as social media comes in. And so we can just like see what it is. And it's like, oh, it's just humans having lunch together. Like, it's not as stayed and removed from us as it once was because, you know, Timothy Chalamet is posting like videos from inside the room. But <laughs> what's very important about this event is what I was thinking about when I saw that photo of Guillermo and Steven and Greta is like, this is the room where it happens. Like, if you get nominated for an Oscar, you're part of a club for a month and a half or whatever, two months. And for the rest of your life. Uh, no, no. And, the, and for the rest of your life. But what I mean is like this is a crucible you're at all these events together with all these people you start to have a familiarity with them an informality with them and then like maybe you can talk about projects that you might want to make like maybe Greta Gerwig is like yeah Steven let's collaborate on something and like it's th those kind of opportunities that when people talk about Oscars being unimportant it's not if it's in like an entry into a hall of power for the, which is almost more important than having Oscar winner Greta Gerwig on your CV, which is important, but like having those opportunities to sit down with these powerful people in Hollywood as a young filmmaker like Greta Gerwig or a young screenwriter like Kumail Nanjiani or a young actor like Timothy Chalamet, like getting that experience, money can't buy that. Yeah. It's being in the club, which I think is something we talk about with a lot of people who like, you know, they get nominated one year and then they get nominated again where it's like, oh, okay, well, that wasn't like as stunning a performance, but once you've kind of crossed the threshold of um, being in the club, it's like they recognize you in a way, which I think is one of the many, many important things about having more representation in the body because they're more likely to recognize women or international directors or uh, you know people of color, just all of the, the widening body of not just Academy voters, but the people who they're willing to recognize. It just pays forward and snowballs so much. The way in which women and people of color are increasingly introduced to the nominee pool means they're have access to those halls of power, which means they can open the doors behind them for more people and all of that. And so it is important, you know, so when people just brush off award season, like it doesn't matter, it's the award itself does and doesn't matter, like, but 
that access matters. And and yeah. so this season, this event, this event maybe more than the Oscar itself, because it's like it's the luncheon and then the Hollywood Reporter hosts a party that night called Nominees Night. So it's like an all day like stew pot <laughs> of like the nominees hanging out together. Yeah, it's just kind of incredible. And you always get these odd couples. Like, that's one of the fun things about the class photos. You're like, ooh, who's standing next to whom? And like, yeah. what weird mixtures are going on? Yeah, and, can we can we do a deep dive on the photo? I've got sure. a, uh, like, I've, I've zoomed in on it. Obviously, there's going to be some people I'm going to have a hard time recognizing. But I think we have to talk about Cardboard Agnes Varda, who right. is the <laughs> definitely the easiest to spot in the photo because it is a cardboard cutout of Agnes Varda, who was being carried around by the co-director of their documentary Faces Places by the artist JR, who himself is wearing a hat and sunglasses and like a sherbet colored jacket. So he would stand out alone, even if he wasn't holding a cardboard cutout of this 89-year-old director who wasn't able to make it to the luncheon. And the fact that they're standing next to Greta Gerwig and Meryl Streep in the top row, like it is such a like powerhouse in that one section. <laughs> And Allison Janney and uh, Willem Dafoe are right in front of them. So it's it's like, bam, 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 bam. JR brought two Varda cutouts because there's one with a cat and one without. And, like, <laughs> one went to the luncheon and one went to like the, the nominees night later. And it's just sort of like, it's incredible. There's also a great photo of Doug Jones trying to like take a bite out of the cardboard cat, which is a Shape of Water reference. Faces Places is such a charming documentary that like it didn't need any more positive press. But if JR like wanted to sort of make this event about him, he did. I don't think he did. I think this is just a very typical JR whimsical way to truly honor her. You know? I hope this is how they win the documentary prize. Like everyone wants cardboard. I hope Agnes Varda, I mean, you know, she can do whatever she wants. It'd be great to have her at the Oscars just because she seems like such a delightful presence. Very cool lady. Yeah, absolutely. Let's see what else we have. Like, I mean, you've got, I, I like the little section where Jordan Peele and Daniel Kaluuya are kind of tucked in uh, and Jordan Peele standing right in front of Steven Spielberg and Luca Guadagnino. Like you talk about the idea of having all these people in the room together, like whatever Spielberg and Jordan Peele talked about, like I'm sure it can only result in good things. And then like people like Emily Gordon and Kumail Nanjani, like Kumail Nanjani's smiling face at the front of this group photo, he's sort of on the edge on the right towards the front. I I'm just like, I'm so glad for you, buddy. Like, I don't think you're going to win, but man, I'm so happy you're in this room. And I'm Emily is wearing this you. great shiny green dress. So she's kind of the first thing you see when you look at the photo. A lot of men wore a lot of color. Timothy Chalamet is in this kind of like emerald green. And then there's several people who I don't recognize who are also in color. And then Saoirse Ronan's got this like really hot orange dress on. You, you, can, you can't miss her either. Someone was like, oh, they put Laurie Metcalf right next to Oscar. That means something. <laughs> I'm like, I don't oh, know about that. I mean, part. Kobe Bryant is yeah. the most visible person by far. I was like, do, do you think they sat him down in the front just because he's so tall? Like he would have blocked yeah. everybody? And, and like, I would say so, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it is weird to be like, and presenting Kobe Bryant as the like marquee person in the room. But, you know, he's pretty dang famous. There's a guy in short sleeves. Um, if you look in the oh back left, he's in the very back row, kind of to the right of Octavia Spencer and Mary J. Blige. I don't know who he is, but good. On, I like the casualness of this event. Everyone gets to, you know, let their hair down a little bit. Yeah. I mean, I guess you decide yourself how formal you want to be at this event. And if you're Mary J. Blige, and you want, I think she's wearing white leather. She looks amazing. Yeah. I, mean, I don't think Mary J. Blige d dresses down, like even at home. No, no, no. She looks incredible. <laughs> it does not seem like, like part of her personality. But it's not like, you know, you must wear a tux or, or anything like that. It's just sort of like you decide what counts as, as formal or appropriate luncheon attire. Exactly. Yeah. 
Uh, and if you're Agnes Varda, that's cardboard. So, you know, <sighs> I, I like it's hard to top a cardboard person. <laughs> I know. It's true. It's, I'm only sad that the cat version of Agnes Varda is not the one in the group photo. But it, there's so much delightful there that you shouldn't complain about it. Um, just one more story I wanted to bring up from reading Rebecca's report from the event. Um, on Saturday, Guillermo del Toro won the DGA award. I think we talked about it last week, how that was kind of the anticipated result. And it now seems like all signs point to him winning the Best Director Oscar. And I thought a really fascinating symbol of how big a deal del Toro has become this award season is that uh, Rebecca wrote, he was, a, he was a particularly popular figure in the room. At one point, Disney chief Bob Iger and Paramount chief Jim Giannopoulos collided on their way to congratulate him. So this incredibly literal v- vision of the studios tripping over themselves to go work with Guillermo del Toro happened in real life at the Oscar luncheon. Which is so crazy because I feel like only recently Guillermo del Toro had this sort of like stink of like always ambitious and creative and great and and brilliant, but like not financially viable. Yeah, Pacific Rim is getting a sequel kind of barely and only because it's going to do well in China. Right. And Crimson Peak, like, you know, and the Hellboy franchise spun out. And like, Guillermo del Toro was for a really long time someone in Hollywood who was like attached to so many projects and not actually completing any, like The Hobbit or whatever else it is. And so, um, like, this is is an incredible uh, award season. And it just feels like there's this this latent Guillermo del Toro love that I wasn't aware of because everyone just seems to be like, well, everyone loves Guillermo. And I was like, do they? I didn't know that. I mean, that's great. He's he's very talented, but I just I didn't know. Well, I just looked up the the Shape of Water has made 64 million worldwide. And I don't know what the budget for it was, but I'm pretty sure it was made on a a smaller budget than Pacific Rim, for example. Uh, So it's a it's a financial hit by the standard of indies. And I think maybe just the buzz around him. I mean, it really is a remarkably similar path to Alfonso Cuaron. I mean, you think he made Children of Men, which was this huge bomb. It was an incredible movie, but the studio dumped it and then managed to come back with the one hit that got everyone to pay attention to him. And then, you know, freaking Gravity is one of the most financially successful movies of all time. So it's uh, it's funny how that happens. Yeah, it's it's pretty amazing. But, uh, you know, this, this luncheon, this day, this luncheon and nominees night day really does feel like the actual, it's just an honor to be nominated day. You know what I mean? You don't have to worry about winning. You're just like, hey, I'm in this rather small club. I get to be part of this photo. I get to be at this luncheon. I get to be at this party. And this is my reward. And I don't have to be nervous. And yeah, and you don't have to sit there and be like, you know, like you were saying, I think Kumail and Emily like may be aware that they're underdogs who win in their category. But you know, I think, I don't think you sit there and think like, but what if I do win? Like, I think if I were at the Oscar even if I weren't nominated, I would be there being like, but maybe, what if it's me? Uh, and at the Oscar lunch, you know, let's give a speech. So there's no pressure and you just get to actually, it's, I think it's the only thing that makes me wish I could be nominated for an Oscar. Yeah. And in fact, I didn't know this until, I guess I haven't paid it close, like, please don't fire me off this podcast, but I guess I haven't <laughs> uh, paid close enough attention to this idea that like they bring someone in to instruct the nominees on how to yeah. um, give a speech. And so this year is Patton Oswalt and, um, I mean, is it always a comedian? Like, who usually comes in to do this? I know that I've read about it before. I think it has been a comedian in the past, um, but I don't, I don't know like what the tradition is. This is this is a Wikipedia page that maybe I should start. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> it's fair. I'm the only person on earth who would do it. 
you know, Patton was, of course, very funny, but like one of the most like sort of, uh, you know, s- searing things that he says is he said, uh, I don't know if you've paid attention to what's been going on this past year in Hollywood. Just cover for yourself. And you don't want to explain to your grandkids why you thank someone that Dateline just did a four part series on. So like, <laughs> don't think you're think your agents and your managers because you don't know who's a lurking sex monster. Oh, God. Isn't that just true about like everyone possible who you can be thanking? Though? Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's uh, I. Someday. Thank your immediate family and God. <laughs> That's it. As we've been saying before the show started, and I will do this as a plug for uh, our friend Richard Lawson, who isn't on this week, uh, but we were saying that the the events that we most wanted to be at yesterday were on the East Coast, Richard's book party, and then on the West Coast, the Oscars luncheon. Uh, and you and I were at neither, so this is how we get to live through it, is just to talk about the luncheon in great detail. No, listen, we are there in spirit. We support all of our fellow VF friends in the trenches. But like, we really do this season have above me on the podcast. Like if this is a podcast you enjoy listening to because you like the ins and outs of the award season, we have just so much great coverage. We have so many good people on the ground this year in LA at all these events. And um, yeah, I feel kind of like we're mission control. Like we're we're there to like, you know, take in all the information that they're bringing us and uh, trying to, you know, keep the keep the engine running and let them go out a field and get all the get all the good stuff. You know, we've got people in the room this year, in every room. In the room where it happens. Well, are we are we talking about the DGA Awards? Uh, sure. Or we, you, you you mentioned Guillermo, but uh, we should mention Julie Miller's big scoop from that. Oh, my God. Yeah. That sort of popped on our website over the weekend was Jordan Peele announcing that he had retired from acting because he was offered the role of poop in the Emoji movie. And he's like, well, that's it. I'm done. And then, and then Sir Patrick Stewart took it instead. <laughs> <laughs> oh god i'm so happy if that's the case for jordan because like you know he's got so much that he wants and will be able to do after this incredible year with get out but y- you know that's another event did that change anything as far as you're concerned it just sort of cemented the guillermo narrative right? i think so i mean it's, yeah. it's like it's weird how just in the last few years the best director award has seemed to be like the greatest wrangling accomplishment award which i think is totally fair i mean when uh uh gonzalez and yuritu won for the revenant even though the revenant didn't win best picture i think it was kind of hard to deny that the accomplishment of just making that movie exist kind of like by sheer force of will dragging it out of the ground um that was hard to deny and then the shape of water i think is i think everything is less complicated than the revenant so it seems like the shape of water was a little less difficult to make but it does it is technically complicated in a way that a lot of the other best picture best picture front runners aren't and I think we've talked about this all season. Like, Guillermo Toro is a really likable figure. And even if a lot of the movies he's been attached to haven't been made, like you said, like he's been in the industry a long time. He's made these movies that have really captured people's imaginations. So it, it seems like this nice storm of a movie that a lot of people really like, a director a lot of people really like, and just something you can look at and be like, that took vision, that took a lot of work to make it come to life, and that feels worth rewarding. You you saying like it's the best wrangling or, or greatest achievement in wrangling award makes me sad for Christopher Nolan. <laughs> <laughs> I just went to go look at his smiling face in the in the luncheon photo and he looks happy to be there. He's standing next to Sam Rockwell. They look like they're having fun. Oh, I didn't spot but either like, of them. I gotta go back and zoom in. They're in the back row, but like, you know, it reminds me, I think it was, I forget who told us this, that, or I read it somewhere that Christopher Nolan said at the Golden Globes to like the Dunkirk table, like, we just have to lose one more award and then we can go get drunk. (laughs) 
So that's like, that's Nolan this whole season. He's going to show up. It's almost like Nolan has like accomplished so much wrangling wise that Dunkirk, like it's like, was that more difficult than Interstellar to make? It's almost hard to tell. Like he has set such a high bar of achievement for himself. And the fact that he finally just got his first Oscar nomination alone, like for me, that feels like an accomplishment, even though I'm sure he would like to win like anyone would. Yeah. You know, kudos to Chris for showing up to all these events, even though he knows he's not going to win anything. You know, you know. he's having fun. I hope he prepares a speech. I just feel like as much as we talk about Guillermo is being anointed, there's still like a whole month to go before the Oscars actually happen. It's so true. Like that's uh, when, when Anna was talking about how she doesn't think there will anything will happen on the red carpet. I was like, man, that just really depends on what happens in the news cycle between now. Ooh. It's like a long road. Like we got an entire Oscar. Olympics in South Korea to get through. So yeah. Who so knows? Like, who knows? <laughs> who knows? So that does it for this week's Little Gold Men. Thank you as always for listening. And please find us on Apple Podcasts, where we especially want you to leave us reviews. You can listen to us through any podcast catcher of your choosing, but that is a great place for people to find us. As promised, all of our awards season specialists will be on VanityFair.com throughout the week. In addition to our regular coverage, in addition to uh, the American Crime Story Versace podcast that we're still doing, um, that I feel like I have to plug from time to time, uh, you can find that on VF.com as well. We're all on Twitter at Little Gold Men, where we love hearing from you. Uh, I am at Katie Rich, Joanna. Jared and Mike and Richard, as always, are at Mike underscore Hogan and at Rylaws. And if you haven't, go buy Richard's book. He'll be very proud of us for plugging his book in his absence. And our special guest, Anna, is at Anna L. Raya. That's A-N-N-A-L-R-A-Y-A on Twitter. This week's episode was edited and produced by Danielle Roth. And this week's award for the best description of how Richard Lawson's book party went goes to Anna Raya. We just sat there. It was like we got the Oprah Winfrey treatment.